Welcome to the 18th episode of the 39A podcast. For our new listeners, Project 39A is an organization that conducts interdisciplinary research on a range of issues dealing with the criminal justice system. I'm Anupriya Dhunchak, a law graduate from National Law University, Delhi, currently pursuing an MPhil in law at the University of Oxford. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Dr. Aparna Chandra. She is an associate professor of law at National Law School, Bangalore. She researches and writes on constitutional law, human rights, gender in the law, and judicial process reform. She collaborated with the Center for Reproductive Rights, New York, and undertook a study on legal barriers to accessing safe abortion services in India, parts of which we will be discussing today with a focus on the criminalization of abortion. I've had the good fortune of being taught by Professor Chandra, so please excuse me if I slip up and call her a Parna ma'am instead. I'm amazed by her ability to package such complex insights in the simplest of language. So as I welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Chandra, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Anupriya, and thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. And you, of course, um, were part of that project that we undertook with the Center for Reproductive Rights. So um, very excited to be in conversation uh, with you once we've had the opportunity to you know, spend some time reflecting on all the learnings that we had from that project. So jumping right into it, this conversation is occurring in the context of the recent U.S. Supreme Court judgment in Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, which held that there is no constitutional right to abortion by overruling the 50-year-old landmark decision in Roe v. Wade. Back home, the Indian Supreme Court's recent judgment in X versus Principal Secretary of Health and Family Welfare held that the Delhi High Court had taken an unduly restricted view in not allowing a woman to terminate her pregnancy at 23 weeks just because she was unmarried. Indian media reported the judgment with smug headlines, claiming we're not like the US. So on the one hand, our judgments will talk about ensuring the highest standards of sexual and reproductive health for women, claiming that criminal law cannot unduly interfere with personal autonomy, and particularly Puttaswami, which recognized reproductive autonomy as a facet of the fundamental right to privacy. And on the other hand, access to safe abortion in India is riddled with so many legal and societal barriers. The Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act basically creates an exceptions-based regime. So could you please shed some light on this huge gap between ground realities versus grand rhetoric when it comes to accessing safe abortion? Sure. Uh, thanks for that uh, question. Uh, we see two kinds of um, rhetoric around abortion in India. One is the general abortion stigma, because of which there's the assumption that all abortion is illegal. Um, and we see that quite a bit in practice. Uh, when we spoke, for example, for our uh, report and our study, when we uh, spoke to, with uh, women on the ground who accessed abortion, they've gone in accessing abortion thinking that what they're accessing is illegal. We've spoken to doctors and other services um, providers who've thought that um, access to abortion is illegal, uh, either illegal per se or uh, parts of it being illegal. Some of that actually comes from, um, weirdly enough, medical textbooks, which talk about 
quote unquote illegal pregnancies um and they call uh, any pregnancy that takes place as a result of an unmarried woman exercising a sexual autonomy as being illegal so there is this entire you know abortion stigma discourse or a discourse grounded in abortion stigma uh which assumes that all abortion is illegal and that obviously comes from a range of sort of moralistic assumptions about abortion but also about uh, particularly women's uh, role in society and you know myths about motherhood as being the norm for women because of which abortion is obviously considered um, illegal so there is that a bit of rhetoric right and then on the other hand we are seeing particularly after this dobbs judgment this um self congratulatory um rhetoric about how india is so much better and so much more liberal than um the us because we have uh, since 1971 the medical termination of pregnancies act which does provide for uh, abortion as you mentioned it's in uh, fairly restricted circumstances but the idea that we have we have a right to abortion uh, i mean that's the rhetoric at least right the reality of course is neither of those uh, things the legal framework within which abortion operates is this the indian penal code criminalizes abortion and it criminalizes women who are seeking their own abortion right so that is the norm the exception to that is the medical termination of pregnancy act which comes in in 1971 and is was substantially revised last year in 2021 and that says that um, you know a doctor will not be prosecuted under the um, uh, under the indian penal code if the requirements of the act are met what are the requirements of the act the requirements of the act are basically that abortion can be provided if the doctor is satisfied that it is required for the physical and mental health of the pregnant person um of the pregnant woman in the terms of the act or um if the uh, fetus has uh, certain uh, impairments because of uh, which either uh it's not compatible with life or um the uh child to be born is uh will suffer from significant uh, disabilities right so that's broadly the uh, framework but it is the doctor's call on whether abortion should be provided or not it is not the woman's decision there is no abortion on request uh in the indian framework and apart from um this the the doctor being the uh the decision maker in this uh, in this uh, process there is also now after the 2021 uh, amendment uh, um medical board that can make determinations uh, for whether abortion should be uh, provided post 24 weeks so uh, there is this entire range of you know decision makers that the law has created on top of that the judiciary has created its own additional layers of judicial authorizations um as a result of uh, which uh, there are a range of people who make decisions about whether a woman can get an abortion or not uh, but the woman herself is a marginal player there her consent is obviously required but her consent is not enough right thank you so much and that makes me think uh, also about the medicalization of mental health particularly uh, because the act in itself words uh, impact on mental health in a very broad fashion but because mental health has been over medicalized and um with the involvement of the medical board 
And when it's combined with the fear of backlash from authorities enforcing criminal law uh, and patriarchal values, that also leads to a range of consent and documentation requirements, uh, which make it very difficult for women to access abortion. So I was also wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, medicalization of consent and also of um, mental health uh, when it comes to accessing abortion. Right. Um, So let me take that um, question in two parts. One um, part is to do with how the processes under the MTP Act play out. Right. So the MTP Act essentially says that um, the doctor has, like I said, the doctor, one registered medical practitioner um, up to 20 weeks now, uh, two medical practitioners uh, within the space of 20 to 24 weeks and a medical board beyond 24 weeks have to take a call uh, whether the requirements uh, under the act are being met and an abortion should be provided or not. In doing that, at least the doctors, the medical uh, registered medical practitioners have to keep in mind the foreseeable uh, social and economic environment of the pregnant person. Now, uh, that to me sounds uh, quite weird that um, you're asking a doctor who is potentially meeting a patient for a half an hour at max, a half an hour um, you know, diagnosis or interview meeting to determine um, what her reasonable, foreseeable, reasonably foreseeable economic and social circumstances uh, might be. As my students uh, very often point out, you're assuming that the woman is actually going to tell the doctor, for example, things like domestic violence, is going to tell the doctor immediately that, see, I don't want to... Uh, to carry this uh, pregnancy to term because I am in an abusive situation, etc., um, etc., et right? That that she will necessarily be forthcoming about her social and economic circumstances with her doctor, right? So um, there is this, and, and, and then, of course, underlying that is the assumption that the doctor is the best uh, judge of um, the reasonably foreseeable social and economic circumstances of the pregnant person, which might impact her ability to uh, you know, care for uh, a child if the pregnancy is uh, taken to term. Right? So, I mean, that that itself uh, betrays a discomfort um, with women's decision making, right? With with the idea that women can be autonomous decision makers and they know what is good for themselves. Um, and then you see all sorts of um, uh, assumptions about, you know, women will take uh, rash decisions and hasty decisions and et cetera, et cetera. And in assuming uh, that women are not reliable decision makers and someone else has to make that decision on their uh, behalf. So medicalization of some of these decisions is itself very problematic. Uh, what happens as a result is that um, for women to seek abortion, they have to they have to fit themselves into one or the other of the slots, right? That the exceptions that the MTP Act uh, provides, and the slot that. Um, the, if if you can't show that there's a fetal impairment or if you can't show that uh, there is a, a physical uh, health uh, issue that the pregnant woman is facing, then, uh, of course, the, um, the remaining catch-all category is mental health. And um, 
while on the one hand of course carrying a pregnancy to term when the pregnancy is unwanted unwanted or unintended is uh, of course traumatic the need to label it as a mental health issue itself assumes that you know the decision on whether to carry a pregnancy to term or to abort is located within this framework of you know mental um, disturbance and mental illness and mental trauma uh, which may not be the case i mean there's the assumption that uh, women uh, will naturally choose motherhood and therefore any kind of uh, it's only distress right that will uh, uh that, that that will force them to uh to towards abortion and that again makes assumptions about women and their their roles in society and sort of the motherhood myth about how women are inherently nurturing and caring and should be inherently nurturing and caring and it's only within exceptions such as when there is distress and you have to show that distress and you have to perform that distress only then uh, are you entitled to um, abortion right so i mean there's a there's a whole uh, concern about the underlying uh, assumptions about women's uh, roles within this uh, framework to the second question that you asked right of uh, consent and the medicalization of consent what the mtp act framework does for consent i should say apart from the indian penal code there are a range of other laws that impact um, a service provider's decision a registered medical practitioner's decision of whether to provide abortion or not right so there is for example uh, the pocso act the protection of children from sexual offences act now what pocso does is that uh, it criminalizes all sexual activity whether consensual or not between um, uh, people under the age of 18 right so as and it says uh, that anyone who has information uh, or even an apprehension that um, there is likelihood uh, that an offense under this uh, act will be committed is mandatorily required to uh, report the same to the police right and then uh, if they don't then there are uh, penal consequences so there's a mandatory reporting requirement for any sexual activity under the age of 18 what does that mean that if someone is seeking sexual and reproductive health services under the age of 18 they're already within the zone of criminalization and if the doctor either knows that they've engaged in sexual activities so for example someone going to seek abortion services obviously there's been um, some sexual activity at some point whether consensual or not or if the if the doctor uh, has an apprehension that uh, there might be uh, the, the person might be engaging in sexual activity such as when someone goes to seek counseling on birth control methods and contraception the doctor is required to inform the uh, police so there is that entire pocso framework the uh, other law of course that uh, comes into the picture is the pcpndt act the preconception pre natal diagnostic techniques act uh, which prohibits sex determination now it prohibits sex determination it doesn't actually talk about sex selection so it doesn't talk about abortion but the in the um, policy making level uh, a lot of the focus of um, you know enforcement of pcpndt is on abortions 
right so when doctors are performing um, abortions they are uh, you know they are uh, in danger of being uh, caught up within the enforcement mechanisms of the pcpntd so as a result what happens is a lot of doctors are very wary of um, of getting caught up within the criminal justice system right if there is some box that they haven't ticked under the mtp act uh, the exception of the mtp act does not apply and then they're open to prosecution under the indian penal code they uh, poxo uh, is something that they might uh, uh, find themselves liable under pcp ndt is something that they might find themselves liable under the range of state level drug laws etc that are putting whole, another layer of complications in terms of accessing uh, abortion so th- all of this has a very chilling effect on um, uh, on practitioners even if they are otherwise inclined to uh, provide abortion services and that by itself is by no means guaranteed like i've already uh, said uh, doctors are themselves uh, subject you know they themselves part of society um, they uh, the general prevalence um, you know prevalent notions around abortion and abortion stigma apply to them as well patriarchal notions about women's role in society apply to them as well uh, and their own medical education very often tells them that abortion is uh, you know uh, something that is uh, in the zone of illegality right so um, it is within this framework that service providers are operating so when Uh, someone goes to a service provider to seek uh, abortion uh, the easiest thing for them to do is to deny abortion even if they're inclined because there's no consequence to denying abortion uh, if they were to provide abortion then they have to uh, then there's a whole range of regulatory requirements that they need to meet so what do doctors do they practice uh, fairly defensive medicine what they will do is they'll make the um, uh, the pregnant person run through hoops they'll say okay get consent from your spouse get consent from your parents get consent if you have neither spouse nor parents get consent from the state someone other than you because we don't just trust you as a woman to take this call on your own so someone else's consent is required none of this is within the letter of the law but there's this additional kind of consent requirement a uh, documentation requirement to say okay give us 10 different forms of uh, proof uh, of identity get a letter from xyz to make sure that everyone knows that you're getting an abortion and that tomorrow if something happens i can turn around and say that you know this was not my call everyone there was someone else who took responsibility for this decision this wasn't um, my uh, my decision uh, alone and that consent was uh, was uh, established um so they women are made to jump through hoops again uh, because uh, women's decision to seek abortion is not really trusted uh, doctors will say things like uh, why don't we you know uh, we we come back after two days three days and then let's uh, take a call on this um so a cooling off uh, period um they'll try and um, you know suggest to the woman or friend counsel court and court counsel her to as to why abortion is bad for her how she will regret that decision the interesting parallel here with the uh, with the us is that uh, in the us many state laws actually uh, provided for these kinds of um, you know uh, mechanisms to uh, regulate a woman's decision to seek abortion or not and the us supreme court uh, had 
in one of these cases that was struck down in uh, in Dobbs, had said that you can't place undue burdens on uh, women who are trying to seek abortion. In India, while the law on the face of it doesn't require any of these things, in practice, doctors adopt very, very similar kind of burdens that they impose on the woman when she's seeking abortion. And that, of course, um, has a huge impact on women's ability to access abortion, particularly women who um, are in impoverished circumstances who can't keep coming back to the hospital or who are in family circumstances where they don't have family support uh, for either uh, generally or for their decision to seek abortion. Um, and uh, of course, women uh, who are uh, uh, pregnant outside of uh, the framework of marriage and might not want to inform uh, their family or other other people, right? So, um in that sense, uh, these kind of repeat, these kind of uh, you know defensive practices of seeking additional consent and documentation requirements, this is a huge burden on women who are seeking abortion. Very often, uh, they just go away and. And then you don't know what happens to them, right? They, uh, we, you know, there's a saying within the, uh, within even the medical community on abortion that any, any person who wants an abortion will get an abortion. Uh, the only question is whether they will get a safe abortion or not. So you don't know where they're going to seek their abortion, uh, seek an abortion if that's not happening, uh, within, uh, within, uh, uh, by, by a registered medical practitioner. Right. Thank you so much. Um, for the first bit, I had a question, um, and I think that's a good seg into the next question. So, um, on the question of over-medicalization of mental health, you talked about how women are burdened, the un- women shoulder the undue burden of having to perform that they have undergone grave uh, distress, and they are at the risk of grave injury to their mental health to be able to get an abortion. Uh, and on the other hand, there are enough like scientific studies corroborating the fact that carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term by itself would cause a grave risk to the mental health of all women. So that in by itself should not require any additional corroboration and it should automatically mean that if a woman is unable to access safe abortion that will impact her mental health. This also made me think about whether the perception of the law as too liberal or too restrictive has an impact on the ground when it comes to accessing abortion because I think one of the counterintuitive findings of the study also was that Often perceiving the law as too liberal leads to policing by the personnel involved in enforcing the law, both medical personnel um, and state authorities, but also that sometimes perceptions of the law as too liberal can actually help women access abortions because people believe that regardless of their personal beliefs, um, the law actually requires them to abort in certain cases. Right. On the um, first part about the distress that is um, caused uh, by carrying an unwanted uh, pregnancy to uh, term, there is a medical question there, right, of um, what is the impact on a person from carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term. Uh, And I mean, there's a fair medical question to ask. But in the realm of the law, I would think that the question has to be, can the state coerce a person to use their body for 
means for um, ends that the person does not want to use their body for, right? Um, can is this is a question about state power what can the state coerce a person to do or not to do right and that's a question about bodily integrity that's a question about privacy that's um in the case of uh, of uh, abortion also a question of equality um and uh, in that sense i don't know that um the question of whether it causes mental distress or not is something that should necessarily be relevant to uh, the uh, the state's regulation of uh, abortion the uh, the assumption that all women will be equally mentally distressed uh, with an abortion like i said assumes that um, abortion is the exception and carrying a pregnancy to term is the norm and therefore the decision to abort is something that's a very traumatic decision the flip side of working within this framework is also to therefore say that oh you know um, women will come to regret this decision later and therefore uh, you know they need to be counseled they need to be uh, made to understand all the consequences of their action and so therefore there's very intrusive uh, mental health counseling etc etc and we've seen that actually with medical boards where medical boards will sit and do you know or doctors will sit and do uh, this kind of uh, counseling of women to try and convince them to uh, to keep the pregnancy in fact we saw uh, this play out very weirdly in the delhi high court a uh, couple of weeks ago where the where the judge of the who was hearing a matter in abortion uh, in an abortion related case um, said that you know you you this is this is carry the pregnancy to term and i will raise the uh, the, the child or i will pay for uh, raising the child give it up for adoption uh so this this kind of an assumption that um you know uh that abortion is the exception uh you know carrying the pregnancy to term is the norm for women uh the gendered expectation uh for women and therefore if uh, women are uh are seeking an abortion therefore it must be because uh, there is a mental trauma is uh, is something that while empirically might be true because women are also subject to these uh, or very often also internalize very many of these uh, gender norms but i think should be irrelevant to how the state uh, looks at this question I mean, the only thing I think for the state to know is if it thinks of women as, uh, you know, as agents of their own lives and as as people who have uh, all the rights uh, uh, that that are available to a uh, citizen or a person in this country, then uh, the only question to ask is: Can the state coerce someone to use their the internal organs of their body for purposes of the state or for purposes of another? uh you know to bring to to sustain another life and that's the question that that needs to be asked rather than what is the impact of it on uh on women right so uh so that's that's broadly my my uh, my response to that first uh, part that you said on the second bit that you talked about about what happens when there's a perception that the law is uh, too liberal now as you noted this was the counterintuitive uh, element of our study so 
around the world there has been a movement towards the decriminalization of abortion and the idea is that you take it away from the criminal law framework so that uh, you know service providers uh, don't have a legal impediment in uh, in providing an abortion we found counterintuitively that many abortion uh, service providers were actually um, had much more abortion restrictive views personal views on whether abortion should be uh, provided to uh, women or not and felt that the only reason why they had to provide an abortion was because you actually had a law that allowed for abortion to be provided so um, uh, so many of them said you know the, this this law is too liberal but what can we do the law is giving people the uh, the right uh, quote and quote to uh, to get an abortion so we have to provide them an abortion and i think the big learning from that was that decriminalization of abortion in india is uh, necessary but it's not sufficient uh, we have to uh, supplement that with uh, some kind of an affirmative right to abortion and an affirmative uh, right to get an abortion at least within the public um, healthcare uh, system where the denial of abortion itself is, uh, leads to some consequences whether they be criminal or civil or what have you but uh, that uh, that we need an affirmative right to abortion just decriminalizing abortion and removing uh, the criminal law provisions in the uh, in the indian penal code and and you know scrapping the mtp act is not going to be enough so uh, decriminalization therefore in india is uh, necessary but i don't think it's sufficient right um and also i thought in light of the dobbs judgment there was a lot of opinions that this will ultimately disproportionately impact poor women and women of color who lack the resources to travel to other states or countries that allow access to abortion or access to expensive contraceptives and even throughout the study that you undertook there were quotes from uh, areas like ranchi which uh, which highlighted how differential this access to abortion is so if you would want to talk about uh, how it disparately places like you already spoke about how abortion places an unfair burden on women how it places a more unfair burden on women who belong to certain strata of society Sure. Um, let me just first say something about the Roe and Dobbs framework uh, in the U.S. context, and then related to what we're finding in India. Uh, so, the court in Roe, uh, of course, very famously located the right to abortion within the right to privacy framework. right and the understanding of the right to privacy framework at least in the us and at least at the time of roe was the right to be let alone the right to be let alone from government interference uh which meant that abortion was a private decision and it was not the state's business to uh to in, uh, to determine whether someone should get an abortion or not uh and there has been a lot of criticism there has been a lot of criticism within the us as well of the the move to placing abortion within the uh, right to privacy framework as opposed to say the right to equality or the right to dignity framework and why is that the um, case so um, you know the um, uh, black women's uh, movements very famously again argued that uh, 
for them, the concerns that they have in terms of accessing abortion or accessing reproductive care more broadly, whether it be their decision to, you know, keep a pregnancy and continue a pregnancy to term or the decision to abort is, of course, uh, determined by their material circumstances and their lack of access to adequate uh, health care, to informed decision making, to structures of support such as child care, state aid, etc., etc. And they said, therefore, that this idea that abortion should be left within a, should be kept within a framework uh, where the government can say, okay, you go do your own thing and we will not bother about it was particularly uh, uh, problematic for them because they required the state to step in and provide the support structures within which they could make uh, decisions of whether to keep a pregnancy and carry a pregnancy to term or to uh, terminate the pregnancy. And uh, so they said that what we need is to place reproductive rights within a framework of social justice. And they call this the reproductive justice uh, framework, right? Now, uh, so, so therefore, they brought in an element both of intersectionality, but the idea that the um, material, social and economic circumstances of a pregnant person determines their uh, decision of um, their, their the range of sexual and reproductive decisions that they that they um, make. Now, based on this, an argument has been made that the right to um, abortion should be uh, better placed, is better placed within the right to equality framework rather than the right to privacy framework, um, both because, of course, um, the ability of a person, uh, of, of a woman in particular, uh, to carry a, uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, you know, participate equally in all avenues of life is uh, impacted both by, uh, you know, carrying a pregnancy to term, but also with child rearing, which is uh, in our gendered uh, societies uh, falls disproportionately upon uh, women, right? So that's a larger uh, two-pronged attack on placing uh, right to uh, you know placing abortion within the right to privacy framework. In Dobbs, this equality argument was sought to be made by uh, some of the interveners um, uh, in some of the Micah's petitions, uh, but the court summarily rejected that uh, argument. They said Rob, uh, Roe was decided on the basis of privacy, so they focused only on the right to um, privacy. Now, if we take this, um, you know, this experience in the US to the Indian um, context, we see something fairly similar playing out, right? Uh, women seek abortion for a range of reasons. And I don't think uh, we can, some of them are personal, some of them are social. We can't, can't have a comprehensive cataloging of why women seek abortion. But uh, one subset of those reasons definitely has to do with their uh, social and material circumstances, right? Um, about whether they have the ability to um, uh, to carry the pregnancy to term, to rear the child within their familial context or their other social and economic uh, context, what will be the impact of that uh, upon themselves and upon the child to be born, upon their families, upon their ability to work, so on and uh, so forth. So there is that element that's already built into, um, you know, the decision about whether to uh, seek uh, abortion or not. The second element is about accessing abortion once a woman has decided that she wants to terminate uh, the uh, pregnancy. Now, um, there is a whole architecture of um, 
you know, of the public health care system, for example, um, where uh, you have community health centers, you have you have primary health care centers, community uh, health care centers, district level, tertiary health care centers, so on and so forth, right? And um, what we see is that both as a result of the laws that we have in place, uh, the rules that we have in place, but also doctors' general uh, discomfort with providing abortion, is that women are made to run from pillar to post. Abortion is not very easily accessible at the local uh, level, particularly abortion in advanced stages uh, is generally referred up to a tertiary care uh, hospital. And there, again, if you're made to uh, run around uh, in, uh, you know, and, and jump through hoops in order to access that abortion, that means you have to keep coming back. Um, particularly for, say, example, daily wage earners, you can imagine that um, they have to keep coming uh, back, losing their uh, day's uh, wage in order to um, get an abortion. And of course, in the Indian context, uh, uh, this sort of impoverishment and lack of access to material resources uh, coincides with other markers of uh, social marginalization, right? Caste, uh, class uh, uh, being amongst the uh, among uh, amongst uh, those categories. So you can imagine how access to abortion, therefore, uh, is mediated through uh, the lens of, you know, all the, the social markers of, of um, identity. And uh, then uh, there will be uh, all sorts of stigma that is associated with um, with particular identities. So we found um, in our study, uh, a complete absence, really a complete absence of any discussion on, um, of, uh, you know, the access to reproductive health care for uh, trans persons, right? Particularly trans men. Uh, many doctors just looked at us with bewilderment when we even spoke about this. So you can just imagine the level of lack of access to reproductive care, care uh, in those circumstances. And then there are all sorts of uh, myths and stereotypes that are associated with uh, women who belong to certain castes and communities. So we saw, for example, in our uh, study in uh, places like Jharkhand, there are all sorts of um, myths associated with how uh, tribal women uh you know, approach uh, sex uh, and tribal societies uh, approach sex and reproduction and doctors make their decisions on whether a uh, tribal woman uh, needs access to abortion based on those myths. So, so we heard doctors saying that, you know, in tribal societies, an unmarried woman having a, a child is not really a problem. And so therefore, we don't really need to provide access to abortion to an unmarried tribal woman. Right. So um, these uh, the access itself is mediated both by the material and social circumstances within which uh, women who are seeking abortion find themselves, as well as very actively the myths and stereotypes that are associated with um, uh, with women from different castes and communities. Thank you, ma'am, for giving such a comprehensive picture of why it's important to place an affirmative right to abortion within an equality context. Uh, I was also wondering, with respect to gestational periods, where do these limits come from when the World Health Organization has said that uh, it's safe to basically get an abortion uh, even beyond 24 weeks, which remains the upper limit in India? And um, because I understand that the pro-life lobby is 
much more strong uh, in the US than it is in India. And if we start thinking about it as an ethical question, um, how should we ensure that it is not divorced from concerns of sex discrimination and women's right to not be forced to use their body as a vessel for procreation? Right. And, uh, you know, that really, in some ways, is the crux of the matter, right? Um, on the one hand, um, if we believe in the right to bodily autonomy and bodily integrity and women's rights to um, equality and right to health, uh, including their mental and physical uh, health, then uh, that would push towards an understanding that you have an un- unconditional right to uh, abortion. And then comes the question of, uh, but what about fetal life? Now, um, there is no understanding necessarily that the fetus itself has rights as such. But uh, even within the US framework, at least till we had the framework of uh, Roe, the understanding was that uh, the state has an interest in potential life, right? The state has an interest in in reproduction and in in, in preserving uh, uh, potential uh, life. Of course, one question is, um, does this, even if we assume that the state has this interest, does this interest trump women's women's rights to bodily autonomy and integrity? And should the state have the power, even if it has an interest, should the state have the power to uh, tell women that the bodies have to be used for purposes other than the ones that women want themselves. So that is, I think, a larger question. And to my mind, if we take the right to bodily integrity seriously and bodily autonomy seriously, then uh, there is but one answer to that question. Now, um, where do the gestational limits come from? Uh, A charitable reading of the 1971 MTP Act would suggest that some of these uh, gestational limits come from the state of science uh, as it was at that time, where abortion was primarily a surgical procedure. And there were some assumptions about uh, about, uh, how safe those procedures uh, were, um, is, is one reading. It's perhaps too charitable a reading, but but let's give them that. Um, today, in the context of uh, 2021, we know that abortion is a very safe procedure. In fact, the bulk of abortions take place within the first term. And the WHO says that at least up to 10 weeks, abortion can actually be managed at home with uh, medical methods, right? With uh, taking two pills. Um, and that you don't actually need the intervention of a service provider even. Right. So uh, the WHO recommendations is at the level of self-management of abortion without the intervention of a service care uh, uh, provider in uh, up, up to uh, 10 weeks. Of course, as long as you have backup access to uh, to healthcare, should you need it? And as long as you have adequate uh, information. Uh in the Indian context today, however, we still see that uh, access to the, the rules under the MTP Act allow even for a doctor to prescribe uh, medical methods of abortion only up to nine weeks. Right. So the rules are not in tune with the latest scientific understanding at all. They're still um, framed within the framework of uh, you know surgical methods of abortion as being the primary uh, method of abortion. And so therefore, 
even the requirements in terms of you know uh, who should be a registered medical practitioner what kind of uh, background experience they should have by what kind of facilities they should have access to etc etc is all geared towards a uh, surgical method of abortion now one way to justify all of this is to say this is for the health of the pregnant person and to protect the health of the pregnant person but we know that uh, that's not true because uh, you know much more um, advanced complicated uh, dangerous uh, risky procedures uh, i mean such as hysterectomy um, uh, for example does not have any of these requirements at all so uh, the the this over uh, sort of a regularized uh, regulations over regulation of abortion clearly is uh, for purposes of uh, restricting abortion rather than because there's any scientific uh, necessity or scientific uh, basis to this um the ethical questions that come in i think are twofold first is the question of sex deter- discrimination sex determination and sex uh, discrimination i think that's a very very important concern but i think we have to ask ourselves whether prohibiting abortion and prohibiting women's access to abortion is the best way to regulate uh, sex uh, discrimination and um, you know fetal uh, discrimination we've seen that the sex ratios are falling regardless of uh, the pcpndt act being there so the question that we have to ask is while we can all agree that uh, the state has a very very valid interest in prohibiting uh, sex selection uh, the question that we have to ask ourselves is whether prohibiting or restricting abortion is the best way to uh, uh, best way to get to that goal right uh, given the cost that it, uh, that that women who are carrying unwanted or unintended pregnancies uh, are the ones who have to bear the cost of uh, of uh, this kind of an approach towards regulating sex uh, selection uh, the second i think ethical question that we don't pay enough attention to is you know you are i think asking doctors uh to terminate a pregnancy and end uh, uh you know to, to bring an end to the fetus at very advanced stages of pregnancy i think that uh means that both we need our uh doctors to be trained to do that and that might lead to a lot of ethical dilemmas for doctors themselves um and we have to have some system at least of managing uh those dilemmas or you know sort of thinking about how best those dilemmas can be uh can be addressed ultimately though the question to my mind is do we trust women to make decisions about their own bodies do we trust that if a person has carried a pregnancy up to say 25 26 28 weeks and now no longer wants to carry the pregnancy to term that there must be for that person some very compelling reasons from within their own lives why they don't want to carry that pregnancy to term or why it has why it is that it has taken uh, 26 28 weeks for them to come to that uh, decision and we allow them to sort of decide for for themselves to my mind it is it is simply that question there's a fantastic bombay high court uh, decision on this uh, 
uh, it's called uh, it's a suomoto decision of the bombay high court where uh, you know the court really talks about this question about decisional autonomy we're going back to the privacy framework to say that we have to trust that women know what is best for themselves for their lives for any potential child that they might have and to take a call accordingly thank you so much dr chandra for sharing your insights and giving us a complete picture on as to how the law operates on the ground and the different personnel that are involved in enforcing it so another thing of concern is the moral paranoia that service providers and courts often demonstrate when they're dealing with women having sex on their own terms outside of marriage and the reluctance that they show in granting remedies to women and um that is deterred by requiring for example the husband's consent and signature on consent forms uh, or by treating a woman who's getting an abortion without her husband's consent as a ground for divorce as something that amounts to cruelty so if you could talk about this indian institutions general reluctance towards providing remedies to women who they think are not having sex uh, within the limits and boundaries within which it is supposed to be had that you are absolutely right both the medical community as well as the judicial community really uh, try to police uh, abortion uh within the bounds of uh gender norms and sexual roles in society so uh we see for example um both doctors you know determining whether uh, whether access to uh abortion should be provided or not based on some of these norms actually for unmarried women it can go both ways on the one hand the understand the assumption that if an unmarried woman is engaging in sex then it is as some of our um, interviewees uh, said that this is illegal sex quote unquote right and if it's an illegal sex then a pregnancy that results from it is an illegal pregnancy and doctors need some uh, involvement of the state before they can provide these uh, abortion services on the other hand uh, uh, you also have um, many doctors telling us that oh well if this is an unmarried woman and she is uh, uh, she is not uh, given uh, access to abortion then uh, her future chances of getting married her marriageability will be impacted and so therefore providing abortion but within all of these reasons whether you're providing access to abortion or not providing access to abortion um is very much uh, determined by uh, your one's uh, you know place within uh, society and the social role that one is uh, supposed to perform we actually see this quite a bit also with disabled women right the forced sterilization of disabled women which is the opposite uh, of access to abortion where uh, disabled women very often do not have uh, the ability to decide for themselves whether to conceive or not because of forced uh, sterilization or forced uh, sterilization in camps in uh, in jharkhand and chatisgarh and orissa um, which is again disproportionately impacting indigenous uh, women uh, which is again uh, based on some assumption about who are the women who should procreate who should not procreate uh, and uh, what are the circumstances under which they should procreate i mean very startlingly uh, 
and perhaps very honestly, the statement of objects and reasons of the MTP Act 1971 uh, says that, uh, you know, amongst one of the reasons why it is providing what it calls a liberalized framework for abortion is for purposes of eugenics, right? So it uses that that phrase, eugenics. Uh, and uh, that's very much also based on the understanding uh, that, again, on what they see as the value of um the uh, you know the life of uh, disabled persons in society therefore you know all this uh, exception that is provided for fetuses that have impairment that might uh, result in uh, uh, disability uh, you know substantial uh, substantial disability if the child were to be born uh, so therefore uh, these exceptions themselves are also based on some understanding of uh, both you know women uh, women's roles in society and uh, women's gender roles in society uh, how they fit within uh, the paradigm of uh, you know good sex and in bad sex and good reproduction and bad reproduction, but also with respect to uh, the role of uh, you know persons in society like disabled persons, um, and yeah, all of that goes into the determination of uh, who gets access to abortion, who doesn't get access to abortion, and under what circumstances. Right, and I think that really shows the shortcoming of not placing our law within a substantive equality framework absolutely um the idea of placing it within a substantial a substantive equality uh, framework would also require us to look at um, i mean one is of course it would challenge the exception based regime itself but to also see what are the kinds of exceptions that you're providing if you were to think of it as an exceptions uh, uh, framework still what are the exceptions that you're providing and why and you know what it does is it also forces women who are seeking abortion to frame their claims within these exceptions, right? And it brings into tension uh, women's uh, bodily autonomy and, uh, you know, other societal, uh, con- uh, you know, societal concerns such as sex determination or, uh, uh, or uh, selecting out uh, disabled uh, uh, fetuses. Uh, and that is a kind of tension that the law is creating because it is forcing women to make these their uh, decisions within the framework of these uh, within the framework of these exceptions. Uh, so that's the question that one has to determine. I mean, again, these are very valid concerns for uh, the state to have. But the question is, can you, just because you have a valid concern, does that mean can you burden the right of women uh, to choose what to do with their bodies um, in the ways that, uh, uh, in, in the ways in which the state has done? And uh, can you put barriers in terms of accessing uh, abortion uh, for women on, um, on, on these kinds of grounds? Thank you so much, Dr. Chandra, for telling us what is really at stake in conversations like these and how important it is for us to foreground these concerns instead of adopting a self-congratulatory attitude uh, regarding abortion rights, which we've seen in the media of late. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anupriya. It's been a pleasure.